0: You're listening to Frontlines, a podcast for the people that truly make mountain biking happen. Not the riders, racers, or product designers, but the builders, advocates, and the often forgotten board members of your local mountain bike trail association. What's more durable, a sidewalk or a piece of single track? The answer is obviously the sidewalk. From a land manager's perspective, maintaining trails that are wider and more compact is just easier. But we can all agree that gravel paths and roads just aren't as much fun. As mountain bikers, we search and crave and even fight for single track. And when a land manager provides us the opportunity to build or sanction trails, that's a privilege. Soft trails are not the number one choice from a trail management perspective. When we demand single track, we become soft trail ambassadors. And that's not just those of us who consider ourselves trail advocates. That's all mountain bikers. But as trail advocates, it's our responsibility to educate and create soft trail ambassadors. I'm your host, Brian Hillier, and this is episode 17 of Frontlines. I'd like to welcome Jay Darby back to the show. He's a longtime friend of the podcast. In fact, the guest of the very first episode. He's the president of MTB Co., also known as the Mountain Bikers of the Central Okanagan, as well as the multi-user group Friends of the South Slope, both of which are in Kelowna. And very recently, he's the Okanagan representative of the IMBA Canada BC Council. Hey, Jay, welcome to the show. Hey, Brent. Nice to be here again. So a few episodes back, you asked a question and, uh, and if you wouldn't mind just kind of repeating that question so everybody uh, is reminded of it, that would be great.
1: Yeah. So basically what I was looking for is, you know, examples or ideas of what other organizations have used to manage the seasonality of trails. You know, we get these spring runoff situations or we get, you know, groundwater moisture coming up in the, in the thawing and in the spring and just what. You know, effective ways organizations have have managed users in trail networks that experience these, you know, seasonal conditions where it really isn't appropriate for mountain bikers to be out there or even other recreation users to be out there on the trails.
0: And is this something that you see every year or has it gotten worse this year? You know, what's what's happening right now out in Kelowna?
1: Was in Kelowna this year, I mean, obviously anybody from BC will know we've experienced a significant flooding in lots of our creeks due to, uh, you know, extremely high snowpack in the spring season. It got warm real fast. We've had a lot of rains, you know, and our trails this year have been, you know, a little bit worse off than other years in some instances. But every year we do see this. I think that the Okanagan experiences it maybe a little worse in some areas because we have such a you know wet spring and a very very hot you know June July period. So there is that time where the snow is gone but the trails are wet and everybody wants to ride, but our trails and our our soil type really isn't conducive to riding in in the wet season necessarily.
0: Over the last uh, month, month and a half, I, I've asked a lot of, uh, a lot of different folks um, what they've done. And so the very first thing that I heard from, from people was that every region is a little different. And, and you've kind of already alluded that to that already. And, and so here's Alex Brieger. He's the trail builder and volunteer coordinator with the Central Washington chapter of, of Evergreen.
2: We're right next to the Cascade Mountains, right next to Western Washington, um, which is always really wet. In Eastern Washington, we don't always get a lot of rain, but when it is wet, a lot of our trails consist of clay and sand. And so the clay gets really slick, which then creates some issues on the trail and sand erodes really quickly.
0: So here's Matt Andrews and he's the executive director of the Minnesota Off-Road Cyclists, or also known as
3: Mork you know wet riding is not uh it's not part of our culture and some people have a hard time understanding that when they've ridden all over the world
0: the north shore where i live is is generally a ride in the rain community and and 8 years ago trails were pretty much all cobblestone or they were so eroded that they just couldn't get any worse and so it was really just fine to go out and ride in the rain but but now many trails are getting fixed uh they're dirt surfaced for the most part they hold up fine in the rain but but here uh, builders in the local club, they're trying to ask riders to just stay off of them during major rain events. So, you know, here on the North Shore, what we have is, you know, 100 millimeter rain in a, in a single day type events. Those are the times when when riders are asked to stay off. But what what's kind of the general rule in Kelowna?
1: I think our situation is a little bit different. You know it's we have similar soil types to so what they're talking about in, in Washington there with the kind of sandy and/ or clay based soils around that really I mean they retain moisture, the the sand will get quite wet and, and loose. The clay will obviously stay put, but you can leave large ruts. you know and really it'll be dry in a day or two in Kelowna sometimes. If we have even 10, 20 mils of rain, that can really impact the soils. But you give it 24 hours and the trails are perfect. And it's just, you know, our issue becomes how do you manage that, you know, small window where it's inappropriate to ride the trails, but it does have a large, long lasting impact on them.
0: Yeah. So I've got, you know, some other experience with, I grew up out East and and with my local trails in my hometown, the, the Hydra cut out in Kitchener, Ontario, it was a, you know, do not ride in the wet type of place. But we had... Uh, a little zone, probably an hour, hour and a half down the road in Turkey Point, and the trails were all sand, but it was flat. So there wasn't an erosion problem like what, uh, like what Alex said. But because it was sand, things dried out very quickly. In fact, it was actually better to ride there if it was a little wet because you wouldn't sink in the sand. Are there some riding areas there that, that aren't of that Wait 24 hours, or, or is it kind of across the board in Kelowna the same thing?
1: Our soil type, you know, it's fairly similar across the board. Certain areas dry out faster, though. I mean, the Knox Mountains, one example of an area where it can almost be within a day. It could rain in the morning, be muddy till noon, and you give it three hours in the afternoon, it'll actually be dry and, and hardened up again. As well, I mean, there has been efforts to decrease, you know, erosion in some areas to get water off of trail beds in the other networks that are more north facing that don't dry out as fast. Really our soil type is just of the of the uh, makeup that it's just really isn't conducive to riding in the really wet situations
0: so something that I've heard from from some people is uh, when in Rome so while you're traveling, you know do as the Romans figure out what is okay to do and what the locals do and try to emulate that when you're out riding and and how how do you think people can can go about figuring that out? I mean that's one of the biggest problems is just you know we can say you know when in rome do as the romans but how do we know what's <laughs> what's happening in each community
1: I think that's where, you know, trail forks is an important tool in that regard. And we do try to use it, I think as well, you know, local shops. There's one here in West Kelowna that does a ride board where it's, you know, what the condition of each trail system is in regards to mud, or is it too dry or, you know, has there been damage to a trail? You know, they keep a board up. that just says, here's where you should ride. Here's where you shouldn't, you know, that's super helpful. Uh, Last year we did get the city to install a, kind of like a fire warning type sign with the like good, bad and ugly, like red, green, yellow, um, with trail conditions on it. So that non-locals at Knox, which is, you know, the major downtown network that gets, sees a lot of spring use. We're able to slide it to what scale it's at and say, you know, trails are muddy, you know, trails are dry, trails are good to go. Um, and that's been a fairly useful tool. I mean, the accuracy is important if people, check your network on trail forks regularly, or they're coming in from out of town and they get to the bottom of your network and the sign says muddy and they get out there and it's actually dry, you know, they're going to, there's not gonna be any accuracy to that. There's gonna be no trust in that signage or in that system. So I think that's an important thing is encouraging, you know, clubs that are doing some sort of management of, of trail conditions to be accurate and report regularly on what it's actually like.
0: Yeah, so here's here's what Mork does, and, and this is Matt Andrews again.
1: Here in the
3: Minneapolis-St. Paul metro area, we've got 13 different trail systems um, under under the Mork umbrella, and each of those trail systems does a really great job communicating um, their statuses via their Facebook page. Each one has an individual Facebook page, and then we also have a, a community forums um, that each have each trail has their own section on the forums, and tied into that forums is a trails conditions. Trail status, um, if you will, update that our our qualified uh, volunteers, we we call our trail stewards and our dirt bosses. um, You know these people have received training on sustainable trails. They're out there on the trails every week, uh, helping maintain them. Uh, They can set the uh, designated status. So, like you mentioned, even in the winter time, uh, you, you know we might have a specific status that says fat bikes only, which really means the trail is a little. You know the sun was out. Uh, the snow is a little soft, and fat bikes are really going to um, be the only thing that you're going to want to ride out there. So, um, being able to change the statuses from open to closed, um, being able to put in a little blurb on the conditions, uh, really helps communicate to the community what's open, what's closed.
1: I think it, you know, is reiterating what I said in regards to, uh, you know, keep keeping accurate information out there for the public for. Visitors having that ability to communicate what the trails are like builds that trust, builds that acceptance that what the local club or what the network manager is saying is, is likely to be the reality that if you shouldn't ride there, I probably shouldn't ride there. I think that's an important point. It's nice that other people are making that point out there that this needs to be an accurate, you know, an up to date information in order to be accepted by the riding community.
0: Yeah, and and something that i heard from from a few guests was that uh having a, a an easily digestible way of displaying that was really important and something that that came up quite a bit was was using maps to display that information so here's Ben Horhan he's the executive director of Mountain Bike Missoula out in Montana
4: we've talked a lot and we've had a lot of feedback from the public that it'd be really great if we would do sort of like a, a map or a color-coded thing or a list. You know, you see it with, you know, the in the fly fishing community where there's a weekly update on what's, you know, which river is fishing well and, and you know, what fish are hitting there. If we could do something like that for trail updates, you know, that would be great. People would love to see sort of a consistently updated list of which trails are muddy and which trails are good.
0: And that's something that Alex in the Central Washington chapter of, of Evergreen wanted to do as well.
2: The other thing we're working on is updating our website and we wanna create a trail status page. So for kind of each region that our chapter helps manage between Leavenworth, Wenatchee and Lake Chelan, our idea is that as trail builders, we're out on the trail and we'll be able to update that either once a week or every other week to show kind of what the conditions are and that sort of stuff. So you've alluded to it, both
0: Ben and Alex have have alluded to it as well as is making sure that that information is is up to date and and so having that information available online uh, available in either a a great map or on a social media page is is great there is there is a bit of a but to this and and so here's Ben again of Mountain Bike Masulani. he brings up a great point about this stuff
4: The fact is that's just, that's just too much work. Trail conditions change by the day. There's too many trails to, to have sort of a reputable sort of consistent and and objective feel to, to trying to let people know, you know, what trails are open or what trails are good to go.
1: So it's interesting that, you know, he mentions that, that point when we put our slider board at the bottom of Knox for trail conditions, you know, having those four choices, we originally, thought of making it user manageable, you know, of like, you can slide it to what you feel it's like when you get there, ride the trail, you know, you get to the bottom and you're like, you know what, it was muddy up there and the user would be able to slide it to muddy. Uh, We talked about that at first and the city thought it might be a good idea. We thought it might be a good idea. And we came down to the decision. It's like, you know what, is it always just going to be set at good? Like, is there, there's so many users there that they'll end up managing it as I thought that was okay. So it's okay. Um, there is examples out there of where, you know, that type of thing does work though, where you let the users manage the, the network conditions just by having a slider board like we have that, you know, and it it usually in some cases doesn't work. In some cases it does work and it's hard to predict where and when that's going to be a valid way to do it. Um, but it has been done other places where you let the users actually manage the trail conditions through a slider board or a map at the bottom, you know, so they can, adjust it after their ride and say, Oh, it was muddy out there. or oh, it was dry out there.
0: Yeah. And, and trail forks is a great example of that as well, where it is the users that can submit those reports and update the status of a trail. Does, does that work or, or is there issues with
1: that? From my experience, I think it's been working I've, as a, you know, administrator level uh, individual for central Okanagan, and, you know, I see what goes up and I, I, Keep track of it, and I try not to be, uh, you know, an overriding authority. If somebody else puts a trail condition up, as you know, I don't go and automatically change it or, or you know, input my opinion on it. And I think, for the greater extent where we are, it's been working. I don't think the use is there yet in that regard for trail conditions, at least in our region. I haven't seen a large amount of, of uh, trail condition reports on. Uh, on like mud or wet or washouts or that type of thing, I do see a lot of you know tree down or corner blowing out like kind of comments on the trail path condition, but not comments on the trail bed condition. There's not a lot of reporting yet, uh, from what I've seen. You know, it'd be, I'd be I think I'm all for that. It'd be great to see users continuously updating you know the trail, trail forks pages for sites or sorry trailforks pages for trails, you know, as to the trail bed condition, you know, it was wet, it was muddy, it was dry. It's, I think mean, that's a really good thing and the more that people use it, the better and more accurate it will get.
0: Mm. You know, in full disclosure, uh, you know, as the community manager for trail forks, definitely I've, I've got uh, a lot invested in, in, into trail forks and I care very much about it, but there's some communities that have done different and unique things with it. And tapping into that trail steward program that a lot of communities have, they've, they've connected those community members into trail forks and represented them as official trail reporters. And so you might have trail reports from the general public, but then on top of that, you've got these, these more official reports that might be more trusted uh, that might have a little bit more detail to them and you can kind of filter and, and view those. So you do have that, you know, controlled system and at the same time you have that always up to date um always has the ability for somebody to update when they're out there riding which is nice
1: well it is true yeah it's it's really nice to have that like on the spot ability to just update trail conditions it, it's been uh yeah like i said it's when it when it's being used i think it's a really good good system for that reporting of, of trail bed condition Um, it's just a matter of getting users either, like I say, either official, you know, trail reporters out there or just the general public using that, that portion of the site on a regular basis.
0: Mm. So the next thing I have is two very, uh, different situations. The first is in Minnesota. So here's Matt Andrews again of, of Mork.
3: Most of our trails partnering with our land managers have gates at the trailhead so we can physically open and close a gate or the land manager might have staff that goes out there on our behalf to uh, open and close the gates and so there's actually oftentimes a physical barrier to communicate to people that this trail is not in good condition at the moment you know it's a double-edged sword right because sometimes our land managers are good partners and come out there sometimes they literally just don't have the staff capacity to do it and so our volunteers are out there and you know there can be a little bit of delay from right, from when the trail is actually good to go to when we get the gates open. So, of course, it's not a perfect system, but I feel it's one of the it's one of the best systems out there.
1: You know, f- physical barriers, in my experience, as somebody who works in multi-use areas where there was previously motorized recreation and there isn't motorized recreation now, but historically, you know, within. Essentially, the last 15 years, there had been motorized recreation. Physical barriers create an animosity (laughs) towards, you know, just the barrier existing. And sometimes people will knock it down or go over it just because it's there. You know, like we experienced that in in Crawford, uh, Myra Bellevue Provincial Park here in Kelowna, where it was previously a. Anybody could go up there. It was a free-for-all. It was developed into a park and now it's a multi-use trail system for non-motorized recreation, but and there's gates and barriers to, to motorized use. But you get people up there using it and for no real good reason. We we have great motorized recreation zones in Kelowna. Some of them are maintained paid-for trail systems, some of them are free-to-use trail systems, but there is really wicked motorized recreation in, in the region. And it's almost like, because the gate's there and they can't use it, they want to go there. It's like, you tell somebody you, you can't use this. Well, maybe I, maybe there's something really good there I want to go use. Physical barriers are always kind of an issue. It's, I always say the guilt factor is almost better is, you know, in, you say don't ride the trails, you're going to wreck them, you know, if you use it more of a language in regards to like your buddies, aren't going to like you anymore. (laughs) You know, if you're out there creating ruts, uh, that type of thing, like the making it the guilt issue, I think is that, or the guilt uh, methods a little bit better than like physically creating a barrier to riding a trail.
0: Mm. Yeah. And I, and I think, so I think you'll, you'll like what Ben uh, has to say. So this is Ben again from mountain bike Masula.
4: We're also not in a position of closing trails. Honestly, we don't, we don't close trails.
0: And so, They're kind of at the other end of the spectrum and, and they actually, I mean, they don't have the, they're not the land manager. They don't own the land that those trails are on and, and it's not their right or, or maybe not their privilege to just close those trails. Uh, That's a big statement to just say these trails are closed and, and who has that, that privilege to do that? And maybe it's not the local trail association.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the relationship that uh, the Mountain Bodies of Central Okanagan or, or Friends of South Slopes, the other organization I work with, has with BC Parks or with the city of Kelowna and Knox Mountain. You know, we don't it's not our ability to go and close those trails and say you can't use them. BC Parks could or the city of Kelowna could. But we're just trying to be the advocate for appropriate use for, you know, here's when you should and shouldn't ride them. You know, it's and again, I come back to that the guilt clause, I call it, or the, you know, that that pushing of the guilt is that, you know, you you inform people that it's inappropriate to ride it. And the people that do get that that understand that are going to comment to their friends and their friends are like, oh, I was riding there yesterday. It was so muddy. It was so awesome. And they're like, well, you know, that kind of wrecked the trails. You probably shouldn't have been there or you shouldn't have been riding that day. Is I think that's a powerful tool or a powerful weapon in the war against inappropriate trail use. It's. It's something that can be very effective, um, in, in managing, you know, inappropriate use of trail systems, whether it's regards to weather or, you know, whatever. So,
0: yeah. And and you're touching on, uh, the people and, and the riders specifically. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I think that's, that's where maybe the problem comes from, um, but also potentially where the solution can come from as well. So here's Matt, uh, with Mork once again.
3: Especially with just the, just the scope of our organization and, you know, how many trail systems we have to manage and plus the, uh, just the population around here. I mean, we've got a great cycling community. There's a lot of us, you know, so uh, that damage could uh, be pretty detrimental uh, without having some sort of mechanism to notify people if it's open or closed.
0: So I was speaking with Jeff Henn, and he's with the Fatlanders Fat Tire Brigade out in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. And and he used a term that I thought was really good. He mentioned that there's a lot of riders who could benefit from what he described as stewardship culturing.
1: I like that. That's a good term.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And and so it's something that's been on the forefront of my mind is that stewardship culturing, uh, you know, changing the public, changing the culture of mountain biking. So here's Ben. Uh, with mountain bike Masula again,
4: we're trying to increase sort of a, uh, a sort of a stewardship mentality, and not tell people they can't go ride
0: something. Yeah, and this was a, a common theme with a lot of people: is is you know whether it's you call it stewardship culturing or increasing stewardship mentality, you know, really trying to change the community and change the culture that's out there.
1: Yeah, I, I like that idea of of like becoming it becoming ingrained in, in the community or becoming ingrained in the mindset of the mountain biker that, you know, I should be conscious of what I'm doing and the effect it's having on my trail systems that I love and how the effect I'm having on those trail systems inhibits or enables the community I'm a part of to, you know, get more trails or get more funding or be more effective in managing his trail systems. You know, if you've got limited resources and limited manpower and you're out there trying to fix ruts all day and then you run into people complaining that a trail isn't brushed and it's it's hard to, you know, react to that of like, hey, I we didn't brush that trail because we were fixing ruts all day because somebody was riding in the mud all week last week when it rained you know and that's a you don't want to get into those conversations with people so you avoid them but in some cases in a lot of trail networks across the country i'm sure that's an issue where you've got you know limited manpower limited resources you can only put it where you're able to and and direct it at things that need doing and some things need doing immediately like fixing large ruts is something that has to be done to make a trail rideable and you know the the other work gets sidelined because you're just fixing problems all day. Um, that's a really interesting point.
0: Mm-hmm. Resources. Brandon Pack. This is uh, he's the executive director with the Ozark Off Road Cyclists, and and they're in in Arkansas. And, and he says it. He says it really well.
5: I think we want to be growing volunteers um, at the rate we're growing trails. And what that is is, as an organization, we recognize that. I mean, we have this. Boom and trails, and it's amazing, right? It's a blessing we have this, just, just we're building it by the mile, by the day. But if at some point we don't take a, a step back and and really kind of focus our energy on the advocacy piece, and really to make sure that we're fostering the growth of the volunteer trail advocates at the same rate we're growing these trail systems. At some point, that model is going to break, right? This year-round riding experience, you know, one of the reasons we have that in Arkansas is because we have this established volunteer base that helps maintain, voluntarily keep these trail systems open year-round for everyone to ride. That's part of that recipe. That's part of what makes, you know, Arkansas so successful. And if we don't, you know, foster that and look for ways to continue to grow those volunteers, then at some point... You know, we could find ourselves where, you know, maybe it's not the great best experience. You know, you ride two miles in and we've all probably rode trail systems like this. You get two or three miles in, you've been getting hit in your knees by weeds, you're covered in ticks, and you're like, man. And that's not the experience we're looking to create, right? That's not what we're wanting to do. And so, you know, as an organization, we're we're doing what we can to really kind of make sure that our volunteers and volunteer trail advocates in our community are getting some recognition
1: uh, that point of recognition is super important. I think that a lot of trail groups um, forget to do that. Is that if you have, you know, key volunteers that are out there on a regular basis, you know, it's they're deserving of recognition. And to some extent, I think that promotes in other people the idea that man, those guys are out there doing all this work, and I haven't even put in you know an hour of trail work this year. I haven't even you know been to a trail day to talk even talk to the club right hey i haven't even joined the club and you've got clubs out there promoting you know here's individuals that have done you know 50 hours of work in the last month for free as volunteer labor to make sure the trails that everybody else is riding are open and rideable you know that volunteer recognition has come up in other conversations i've had with other groups or you know even with individuals that are out there is you know they often the word trail fairies is thrown around is they don't even know who it is doing it often the general mountain bike community they just the trails are open the trails are clear you know those ruts were fixed they don't know that it was who it was that did that or that it was that it was one person who did a lot of that work they may have assumed that 20 people did Uh, even here in the okanagan a lot of times it's assumptive that you know, the club as a group did something when really it was an individual who went out there on their own volition associated with the club or not, and undertook that trail maintenance just because they wanted that trail to be in better shape or just because they felt like, you know, it was unsafe or it needed fixing. And it's it's I think it's an issue sometimes that, you know, without properly recognizing the the work of individuals, you don't you know, portray to the community that there's more work to be done, and there's not enough labor to do it. Sometimes,
0: you know, we use the that term "trail fairy," and and I like it. I think it's I think it's fun. Um, it's cute. But it is cute, <laughs> but it it's they're it's not make believe. There's still people actually doing the no. trails, and and that's what we need to recognize. Is like, sure, you can use that term, and and it's it is fun, but that doesn't mean yeah. that there's not really somebody who's doing that
2: work.
1: No, I I think it detracts from the idea that these people are committed, dedicated individuals who exist and who would welcome help and welcome assistance in their efforts and, you know, are often... Um, You know, not neglected by the community, but perhaps forgotten, you know, uh, by organizations and the community as a whole. As an organization, you know, a lot of our effort goes into existing, promoting our existence, um, advocating for mountain biking, advocating for a responsible trail use, you know, writing insurance checks and and that type of thing and, and promoting events even we don't have the time sometimes to support these trail ferries as much as we'd like to, but it's getting them in the fold as well as getting the community in the fold in order to work as one whole. I think a lot of and this is speaking from my experience in the Okanagan, but also, you know, speaking with other advocacy groups throughout BC or throughout Canada, you know, it's it's something that everybody experiences. A lot of the work is unrecorded and, you know, unmentioned. And it's it's something that, you know, I think we need to work on as advocacy groups to encourage as much as possible everybody to get into, you know, the mindset of we all need to work together in order to make everything succeed to the utmost potential.
0: Yeah, and, and you're kind of getting on – that that term volunteer burnout and it's it's something that in episode one in our discussion we, we, we touched on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> and um Brandon and and I, Brandon from the OORC out in Arkansas, you know, we talked about it quite a bit. I, I have a full interview with with Brandon and it's gonna come out in, in two episodes. So episode 19. Um, i won't I won't kind of give away too much about that, but he's they do some really cool initiatives to prevent that volunteer burnout and it's all about that recognition and, and it's it's really neat. so definitely something to to listen to in, uh, I in a to couple that. weeks. That was a shameless plug, but oh well. <laughs> so Brandon did mention something else uh, that I'd like to highlight and, and Arkansas is relatively dry and they don't get a lot of snow and it's four season biking there. So here's Matt Andrews again with Mork.
3: Non-stop season for us, especially with fat biking being a huge thing now. The trails just don't stop.
0: What's winter like in Kelowna?
1: Here in Kelowna, I mean, we've got a very extensive freeze-thaw cycle. So we get, um, you know, two years ago, I rode right till December, no snow on Knox Mountain. Um, There had been snow in town. It thaws out super fast and it's dry hard pack trails again uh, you know, the North facing slopes, Myra Bellevue, Crawford, Gallard, you know, it, it stays a little bit. It can get kind of muddy that sort of season. If there's a little bit of snow, but, but a lot of melting, you'll get trails that are rideable, but, but, uh, you know, bad conditions. And then other years like this year, we had a ton of snow. Um, it got hard packed ice guys were fat biking on trails that would normally be mud, uh, in December or, even, you know, later in the season, like February, March, stuff was starting to thaw up a little bit. Then we got large snowfalls. You know, we have a super regular winter, um, super unpredictable. And like I said, the freeze-thaw cycle can just be all over the road. It'll change a thousand feet of elevation for our freezing point in a matter of a week or two. Um, Which makes for, you know, we don't run into too many issues in the winter, but it could be as mountain biking gets more popular, as more people are doing this, as the fat bikes and plus bikes come out, you know, I can only foresee some more issues in regards to, you know, appropriate trail use seasonally. Like when should you be, at what point does a plus bike okay to ride in, you know, irregular conditions, but a fat bike you know, would be better for another two weeks, but your plus bike, you shouldn't ride it anymore. And your mountain bike, you really shouldn't be on the trail. I think that, you know, those categories of cycling are really cool. It lets us do some neat riding. It lets us ride in the off season, but it actually could in some areas like ours lead to actually more issues down the road of, of this off season cycling. And these bikes that make off season cycling very popular and, and super fun to do actually.
0: Mm. Definitely. There's the potential for, for, Issues as, as we see more of this, I mean, fat biking is, is huge. When you go East, um, it is, it's everywhere and and the Midwest it's, it's, it's taken over. These places. Uh Vancouver for the first time this year had a winter. Uh, and I, I was blown away at how many people had fat bikes. I'm I i, I do not know what they would have done with these bikes every other winter, but for whatever reason, there was a ton of them out on the trails. And it was great to see. But it yeah, it, that winter riding, that fat bike riding is more condition dependent. Absolutely. And and in that sense, it's kind of like skiing, you know, in the wrong snow and suddenly it's it's not fun. And so I look at this as maybe this could help change the culture of mountain biking. Maybe this could be the thing that forces people to update conditions on, on a system like trail forks or to check conditions before they go out, because not only is, does the trails matter in that sense, but also the, the enjoyment of that ride, it it relies on that as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, we've been, other winters before this, previous, it's almost, you didn't need a fat bike because there were only two months where you couldn't ride. You know, this year, we, it was, we had a crazy winter, like just, you know, seasonally, just like Vancouver and the rest of BC did. There was so much snow and it, you know, froze up, it got hard. You know, the fat biking was was awesome, actually, for most of the interior, um, comparative to other years where we've had these, you know, irregular winters that we get in the low-lying lake valleys of the interior. I mean, that's a large part of it is we've got the the lake effect here in the Okanagan and the Shuswap, to some extent in Kamloops. You know, you get these, uh, you know, the freezing level can rise and, and lower so quickly um, due to the large water, large water bodies that, you know, this winter it was cold and it was snowy and the fat biking was awesome. I think, like you say, you know, people might get ingrained with that idea of condition-dependent cycling, you know, I go, I'm a snowboarder myself and rates of the winter, I've got three snowboards and one comes out in the rock season. One comes out in the spring and one's there for the hard part of the winter where I know there's a good base and I know there's, you know, I'm not going to run into rocks and roots and that type of thing. You know, maybe we've got condition dependent biking, you know, going to come up in the community as a, as an idea of, of how you cycle. Do I go out today? Do I not go out today? You know, do I take my fat bike because it's, You know, it's muddy and there's some snow around, so I shouldn't ride my mountain bike, but I could definitely go ride a fat bike.
0: Here's Ben uh, with Mountain Bike Masula one more time, and he's speaking about their trails director, Brian William.
4: What Brian's been doing a really good job of is he releases uh, once a week, he goes out and he rides a bunch of stuff um, or spends the weekend riding, and um, once a week releases a two or three minute video where he kind of just checks in from one of the trails that the snow is coming off of talks about where he is, what's good, where he has been riding and, and what's good there. And then also tries to identify something to look for and, and kind of give people tools for making their own decisions. And so whether that's looking for mud in the tread or, you know, reminding people to ride through puddles, not around them, or even some, you know, kind of user conflict things, whether it's dealing with horses or hikers and reminding folks about right-of-way stuff and and things like that. So it's also, on the one hand, it's it's, it's a huge opportunity for riders who maybe aren't sure if, you know, such and such trail or sawmill gulch is ready to go yet. You know, Brian can go up there and tell them that it is or it isn't. He can tell them what's riding really, really well right now. Um, And then he can also kind of give them a little bit of heads up for for things to look forward to or things to look out for um, when they're out riding, exploring on their own those videos are up on our facebook page so you can kind of get a look at look at what he's doing they're they're definitely like zero production value 100% just content um zero polish which is i think i think people kind of like you know it's just a quick and dirty like we're not you know spending all of our time in in a, a video editing software we're just trying to get the information out
1: I think that's a really cool example of of a unique way to you know advocate for appropriate trail use, and and also to educate the user group, to educate mountain bikers of you know here's what you here's an example of a of a situation where you probably shouldn't ride this trail, or here's an example of a trail that's in perfect condition. You know, as we all know, there's a certain moisture level where a trail is beautiful, where it's 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 tacky, it's not dry, it's that perfect situation where you're not collecting mud and you know and tearing the trail bed up, but you've got traction galore and that's that perfect, you know, trail condition that we're all in the pursuit of. I've been there, I've ridden it, I've ridden trails that are too dry and I've ridden the ridden trails that are too wet. You know, I've gotten the bottom trail networks and gone, you know, man, I need to come give these guys a trail day now because I just wrecked some stuff. Um, But yeah, I think, yeah, we're all in pursuit of that perfect trail condition. That's really cool that they're doing that where they're educating their their constituency of of, here's what our trail network looks like. Here's what you should ride. Here's what you shouldn't ride. You know, and and he makes a good point about, you know, like other trail users and how to, you know, talk to them or, or interact with them in those trail conditions. That's pretty sweet.
0: Yeah, and and I think it it achieves another thing too, where it puts a face to the organization, and and so Ben told me this, and right away I was like, I got to tell my local club about this. So I, I wanted to tell the, the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, and and before I had a chance to to tell them, the very next day, their director of advocacy, Cooper Quinn, posted a video exactly like it, right? And it was it was great to see, like it's already I've seen a number of other clubs taking advantage of it now, which is really cool.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a great it's a great idea. I mean if if you've got the time and manpower to do it, that's a, a super you know, good tool to, to educate and, like I say, put a face to the organization other than just being out there on the trails and, you know, and, and identifying yourself. I think that's a super important point. And I, I push that to all of our directors and, and our volunteers. You know, we've got a, a Tooney Ride series that we run with a, a pretty solid, you know, regular volunteer base. And I tell them all, you know, if you're out there riding, identify yourself as who you are, identify yourself that you're associated with. organization. And if you see people doing something that's good or bad, you know, like encourage or discourage that behavior and let them know who you are and where you're from, and if they've got any questions, come forward to us, send us an email, give us a call, you know, come to a meeting, whatever, come to an event and talk to us about why these things are bad or good, or or if you've got more questions about about trail systems and you know trail system integrity, you know, we're here to provide that information or provide access to that information for, for you. That's one of the things that, as an advocacy group, and I think to some extent, you know, when I posed my question and we first talked about having this interview is that i think that's something that perhaps some of our organizations forget about from time to time is that we are you know advocacy is an important part of what we do as much as securing trail systems maintaining trail systems you know encouraging our user base to be stronger so you know doing events to get more members that kind of thing you know an important part of our job is advocacy you know encouraging people to appropriate use trail systems to think about, you know, conflicts between other user groups, how we can manage those conflicts in a positive way. So that as a user group, we're given access to as many trails as we're able to get access to by being, you know, advocates of our, of appropriate use, you know, by being a cohesive group of people who are enjoying the wilderness in an appropriate way.
0: Next, I've got four ideas uh, from Alex Brieger, uh, central Washington evergreen chapter. And, and here's the first.
1: Kind of our rule of
2: thumb that we've been trying to teach people is that once the concrete in front of your house is dry, usually the trails are pretty dry. The second one from Alex, here it is. We work with the Schlein-Douglas Land Trust, and they have these really cool cement blocks that show the prints of all the multi-use users that use trails. And if the trail looks like this right now, don't go and ride.
1: Uh, You know what? The emplacement the of the bricks at the entrance to trail systems is a super cool idea. That is, is really a unique way to show, um, you know, a user groups what impact their, their use of the trail in certain conditions has upon it. That's something I've never even like crossed my mind. That's, that's really cool.
2: So here's the third one from Alex. We've been working on getting going to farmer's markets and having tents or going to different events where people learn what Evergreen is and then try and get people to become members and as members then coming out to volunteer. And once they're out on the trail, they really do see uh, the impacts of how long it takes to fix a, the ruts or drainage issues and that sort of stuff.
1: I like the idea of you know engaging users or in, a, in an alternative uh, format location, like they said, going to like farmers markets or other community events and trying to engage the general public who may be trail users in, you know, appropriate trail use and, and portraying, he said in the same little instance there, portraying to people how much work it actually takes to fix broken trail or, or you know, eroded trail from inappropriate trail use. Uh, you know, I, as, uh, as I sit on a, a multi- use board as well as the board of the mountain bike club you know in that multi-use board you know we discuss hiking and and horseback riding and mountain biking and you know there's actually an issue in some networks like ours that are that are very multi-use that trails can be of a condition where you can hike and bike on them but not ride a horse and trails can be in condition where you can safely and appropriately hike on them but you shouldn't bike or ride a horse and it's really hard to manage three user groups and tell one user group they're allowed to run a trail network or one user group they're allowed to access it uh, or even two user groups you you guys can both access it but really this trail's not in condition for this user group right now Um, because there's a there's an equality issue there of of, you know well shouldn't we just close it to everybody then if if one user group isn't allowed to use it the other two are and at what point does that trail at what point is it of a condition that each user group is allowed to use it it's it's really hard to measure and that that complicates it quite a bit so it's it's interesting he says that of like you know putting each user group's track on a brick and saying you know if if you're leaving marks like this that user group shouldn't ride it it's a really cool way to portray to, to each group you know when and why they shouldn't ride a trail or use a trail
0: yeah, and I and I think you have an interesting perspective because you you do sit on a, another group that is you know fully multi-use, and there's a lot of trail associations out there, but but really they're they're mountain bike trail associations, um, and and there are a number of other groups that are true you know equestrian, running, hiking, and and mountain bike groups, but for those groups that aren't, I think that we we forget that you know, all users are affecting trails and we might not be communicating to all of those users. We might only be communicating to the mountain bikers and it's important to get out to other users.
1: Uh, absolutely. I think that there's probably, you know, uh, it's been to use North Shore as an example. You know, there's a lot of people hiking those trails or trail running those trails. Trail running is, you know, a bursting sport and it really hasn't hit its apex yet. We're going to see more and more people out there Exploring mountain bike trail networks that aren't on bicycles, and you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that that's fair use. You know, we can't ask for exclusive use of our trails. We can encourage people to understand that they are mountain bike trails made for mountain bikers, and if you're trail running on them or hiking on them, beware. We may be descending at an accelerated rate. You know, we may be climbing these trails. Out of breath, heart throbbing, and you should probably step out of our way so we don't have to stop and start again, because it's easy to stop and start when you're hiking or running compared to being on a bicycle. Um, you know, but I think it, it behooves us to understand that our trails may be used by a lot of other user groups or or multiple other user groups, but a lot of skill levels, let's say, you know, and and it, you know, it, it's reasonable for us to undertake the education of those groups as well. You know, recently last fall, I was in uh, Vetter uh, riding and uh, talking to locals there about how they put in a new climb, and it's become a super popular dog walking, like Sunny Side Up. I don't know if you've ridden it, super popular dog walking and running trail as well. Um, And they're super open to that because they've actually had a lot of trail runners show up on trail days to help maintain what is essentially a mountain bike trail designed for mountain bikers. And they're maintaining it in a manner that benefits the mountain bikers because that user group understands that without the mountain bikers, that trail wouldn't have been there. And and they're benefiting from the mountain bikers developing that trail system, which is really neat to see. A lot of places you see animosity north shore as an example you see the animosity between hikers and walkers and mountain bikers a little bit and out here out in vetter out in the valley you're seeing this really cool not a multi-use trail system being used by multiple user groups and and this like really like reduced animosity or or you know uh, really like uh, uh beneficial to both sides in relationship going on it's kind of cool uh, as opposed to you know in a bc park like our the Meyer Bellevue or Crawford Riding Area, you know, it is strictly multi-use. There is no trail there that is just for bikes, or just for horses, or just for hikers. You know, and so that's built into the trail system. But it's trail systems that aren't like that. This multi-use aspect happening in a positive way.
0: Hmm. Connecting with those other user groups and building those partnerships is is only going to create good things. And I'm really excited here on the North Shore, we've actually got a trail running alliance that that's just started. Um they they still need to to form a board, but um, but they're they're getting to that process and uh and and it's gonna be neat to kind of see their perspective and to hear what makes a good trail for them as well, right? And and potentially even to be able to cater to them a little bit and, and work with them because it's it's something that um that I think we should all be thinking about is who else is on the trails. It's not just mountain bikers.
1: No. And it's, I think more users, even if it's a mountain bike specific trail network, more users of a different user type is not necessarily a detrimental or negative thing. It can be an extremely positive thing. Like in the examples I was giving of where you've now got a greater labor force. You've got a greater advocacy force. Um, you've got, greater numbers to encourage, you know, grants or, or, you know, regional district funding or municipal funding of these networks when you're not just one sole user group, when you're saying, Hey, this is a mountain bike trail system. We're mountain bikers, but we've got this running group here who uses all of our trails, likes the way we've been building them. But now we have got 200 other, you know, official registered people riding or, or utilizing these, this trail system. It's, it's super important. You know, the more, num- the more numbers, the more money I tell that to people all the time the
0: last point from alex uh, was something that i heard from from most people to be honest with
1: you
2: posting pictures on instagram that kind of show what wet trails look like and what the damage looks like
0: that's not a revolutionary thing but but i wanted to include it because there there can be some negative effects to doing this, and so here's Christine Reed. Uh, she's the executive director of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association. Um, some some people might remember her. She was in episode two uh, about social media of of the podcast. Um, here's kind of her with a little bit of warning about posting trails, uh, posting photos of damaged trails.
6: So when you post a photo of a damaged trail on social media you're sharing that with not only your followers and membership and people who are interested in trails but you're also posting that to people who might be your detractors or people who are not fans of mountain bikers Um, and mountain biking trails so you're running yourselves at the risk of exposing any of the issues that you might be facing. Um, and then that can be used against you in conversations with land managers um, and, and in your advocacy efforts because you've now shown the reasons why you would want to do the trail work. And I can understand why people would want to post that on the Internet or posted on social media as a, as an example of why we would want to stay away from something, mm-hmm. um, and why we'd want to stay away from those trails. But it could also do you more damage and disservice. In that, people will use it against you. They'll show it as the reason why mountain bikers should not be using the trails and why advocating for trail use is is not the best. But when it's best to share images that are of the actual work that we do.
1: You know, I, I agree with Christine to some extent, but also, you know, I, I think in some regard that ship has sailed. Um, you know, we it's not the subject, it's the context. Um, in encouraging appropriate trail use and trying to, you know, share with the public at large or with our user group or with other user groups, you know, what is inappropriate trail use, you know, we're doing that in the context of this is something that shouldn't happen. This is something that, you know, we should avoid and, and this is the man hours that go into to, to doing to fixing that, but you know, if anybody who's watched mountain biking media or who has read mountain bike magazines, there's hundreds of examples of of publicly available images and 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 video of people inappropriately using trails. You know, and that is always going to be there and to a large section of the public, that's their perception of mountain biking. You ask somebody who has no connection with a mountain bike or what mountain biking is like, and they use the word extreme and, and crazy and they jump off stuff and, you know, and, you know, the recent imagery has been, you know, blowing up berms is is a thing. And that's, to a large extent, that's where the public consumes their mountain biking, is in, you know, these extreme videos or in in mountain bike media they happen to see lying on the newsstand or, you know, that video their their nephew was watching or that magazine they found lying on the counter at their brother's house. You know, that's how they perceive and consume mountain biking, you know, and in the regards of how we're using that imagery of of inappropriate trail use, you know, we're using it to encourage people to not do it. I, I think... And like I say, that that ship has sailed in some regard, although I do agree that, you know, we need to be um, tempered in the way we use that imagery and and ensure that we're giving the message to go along with it, that this is something that shouldn't exist or something that shouldn't happen, that that this is inappropriate ways to, to use the trail systems.
0: So I'd like to finish the show on two points. And the first comes from Jeff McNamee. He's of the Salem Area Trail Alliance out in Oregon.
2: People aren't doing it
3: maliciously they just this is their day off they get to the to the trailhead it's shitty they see these signs what are they going to do go home no <laughs> they're going to go ride it
0: <laughs> and the second is from christine again of the NSMBa, and i asked her how do we as trail stewards avoid shaming other users
6: using more positive messaging positive voice asking people to here's an action you can take as opposed to here's an action not to do so an action you can take to not um, do damage to the trails is I'm going to choose something different today I see that it's raining I'm going to do yoga today or I see that it's raining maybe I'm going to try a different trail because I know that this trail gets a lot of water damage or it has a lot of puddles on it already I'm going to choose something different today so instead of do don't do this um, and a very negative uh, messaging what else could they be doing and a part of that is coming out to a trail day
1: so I think that uh you know both those points go back to something I said earlier uh the first one being that I mentioned you know I've ridden trails myself on days when they shouldn't be ridden And my first reaction at the bottom was, oh man, I owe these guys a trail day. And you know, it was, I drove all the way out uh, to Vernon from Kelowna, rode a trail system. It had rained all night before, but it had been planned. We were going, big group ride, it was Thanksgiving. I mean, this was our Thanksgiving ride day. And you know, I I got to the bottom and it was, I felt guilty because of my knowledge base, because I'm educated in appropriate and inappropriate trail use. And that segues into what, what Chris Ristine said as well is that positive versus negative thing. And I was mentioning earlier, the guilt factor. I, I like to talk about that from time to time. I think there can be positive guilt and negative guilt. You know, people, I think it's a strong emotion when you feel bad about something. Like I felt bad about that. I bought a Ox membership, like a North Okanagan cycling society membership. And, you know, I've planned to go out to some of their trail days this year. Cause I really do feel like I owe them labor for for the ride I went on last last fall, uh, or sorry, last uh, yeah last fall, and I think that that's positive guilt, you know, because I'm knowledgeable and I understand what I did may have been inappropriate at the time. I did it because situationally it was just happening, and but that encouraged me to make an effort to reach out to that club in in some regard. You're joining their club, becoming a member, and then, you know, encouraging friends to go out on trail days who were there, you know, planning myself to go out on some of their trail days, kind of to make up penance for for what I did. And I think that's a positive guilt. You know, like Christine was saying, you know, you don't want to shame people, that would be negative guilt. You're, you're shaming people into coming out. You know, you rode the trails when they were muddy. You should be out here. You know, I don't think that's the way, like she says, we don't want to approach it. We want to be positive about it. And I think that's, by reinforcing positive actions, by reinforcing, you know, the trails are muddy today, you know, I'm glad I didn't see anybody out there. Or, you know, there there is ways to construe that in a, in a, in a bright light rather than a dark light of, of that, you know, feeling of, of I shouldn't be doing this. And I think, like I say, it comes from education and understanding of what is appropriate and what is inappropriate
0: yeah and, and that that's the point that i'd like to finish on and and so i'm in the very early stages of planning an episode with brandon watson and he's the marketing chairperson of the minnesota minnesota off-road cyclists and he got involved with the club to focus on uh their their social media presence and what he recognized was that their entire social media presence was negative it was don't do this don't ride here this is what trails shouldn't look like uh who, you know, who rutted up these trails, that kind of thing. And it was, it was just not something that he wanted to follow. It wasn't something that a lot of people wanted to follow. And and it's not productive. It, it wasn't productive. And they didn't get a lot of follows on social media because who wants to just have a, a finger wagged at them the entire time? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so he kind of came on board and, and shifted that message to more of a positive, positive one. And that doesn't just mean rainbows and lollipops. There is that, education component to it for sure Mm -hmm. well jay i wanted to thank you for for joining me once again this is uh the third time uh the third show that you've it would been be on, yes uh, which is which is fantastic <laughs> you're becoming a, a a repeat guest and uh and it's been yeah. great to hear from you again so
1: well, i enjoy our conversations it's, it's awesome to to see this happening throughout the community to have input from so many other organizations across you know the country you know across north america it's awesome that we're sharing you know our knowledge and resources in how to effectively manage these type of issues thanks so much thank
0: you I'd also like to thank everyone who participated in today's discussion. Alex Brieger of the Central Washington Chapter of Evergreen, Matt Andrews of the Minnesota Off-Road Cyclists, Ben Horhan of Mountain Bike Missoula, Jeff Henn of the Fatlanders Fat Tire Brigade, Brandon Pack with the Ozark Off-Road Cyclist, Christine Reed of the North Shore Mountain Bike Association, and Jeff McNamee of the Salem Area Trail Alliance. Next episode will be my interview with Devin O'Neill, writer for Bike Magazine. We'll be discussing his four-part article, Lines in the Dirt, where he explores various battles for trail access across the United States. If you haven't read these articles, I definitely suggest doing so. There'll be a link in the show notes. I'm also in the very early stages of planning an episode about the disconnect between the bike industry and the advocacy world. If you'd like to contribute, let me know. Like always, you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at FrontlinesMTB. You can also send me an email or an audio file to frontlinesmtb at gmail.com. Don't forget to support the show via PayPal. You can find a link in the show notes as well as links to all of my guest websites and various social media pages. Music is once again by Lee Rosevere, production notes by Jennifer Pride. And finally, I'm Brent Hillier. This is Frontlines. Thanks for listening and happy trails.